Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And once again, Paul is defending his apostleship. Remember, the two big themes of the book is um, defending his apostleship in light of the false teachers in Corinth and uh, provides some real insight on how to suffer well. The two are related, and this chapter actually shows that. What Paul does to defend his apostleship isn't look at uh, his, his calling, though, though he does that in various places. He actually looks at his endurance, that um, God has empowered his ministry. Though he is weak, he's been able to do some incredible things, and the church in Corinth is case in point. And, and that's sort of his point, that, that suffering doesn't mitigate the work of Christ in your life. It may be proof of Christ's work in your life. Maybe you've, you've had a moment in your own life where, where you, you, you were suffering greatly and going through some traumatic events, and, and it is because of your faith you were able to persevere. And so that, that time of suffering was demonstrative of God's spirit and God's work in your life. It's essentially what Paul does here. I want to skip down to verse 3 just for the sake of time. He says, uh, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Um, that, that is actually a, a... 2 Corinthians is a good book for, for ministers to, to, to know sort of how to approach things. Here's one. Don't put obstacles in people's way um, so that no fault can be found in your ministry. At the end of the day, what a minister is called to do is to carry themselves in such a way so as no fault is found with their ministry. Verse 4, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, um, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Now, uh, that's quite a list there, um, and, and perhaps bigger than the one that we could look at in, in any detail. But, but uh, that list is quite striking. I mean, I want you to put yourself in Paul's uh, shoes here. Would you persevere in life, in your Christian life, uh, through, uh, what's the list he gives there? Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, Late, uh, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Like would, would we persevere? How many times whenever we go through a traumatic event or a moment of suffering, do we begin to immediately call into question the compassion and love of God? We, we American Christians have gotten spoiled um, in, 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 in our country, um, and we, we've bought into a soft prosperity gospel that says that God owes us an easy life. And whenever life doesn't go the way we want it to go, then, then, then the only answer is actually to leave the only source of comfort that, that we have. Paul makes the opposite argument. He says that what led me to persevere through these afflictions and imprisonments and riots and beatings and everything is my calling of ministry, my faith in Christ. Well, what a contrast. If, if, if I could count the number of people who, who seemingly have abandoned the faith and abandoned discipleship at the very least because of personal suffering, I could probably plant another large church um, with, with just them. It is really is, is incredible. God doesn't owe us anything. 
the fact that he gives us his son is significant in of itself. And to add to it, amid suffering, which is inevitable, we are all coming out of suffering, going into suffering, uh, we, or, or in suffering. We, we, suffering is part of this world, but our faith in Christ must, must remain secure. But he also adds that through that they remain pure, uh, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, power of God, weapons of righteousness. So you see that, that it isn't that he's just putting up with it, but rather he's demonstrating grace under fire. He's dem demonstrating godly character in an in, in ungodly world. I mean, again, what a contrast. Many of us use moments of suffering as an excuse for unrighteousness. Well, if you don't understand what I was going through, then, then, then you wouldn't be getting on me like that. But Paul makes the opposite argument. He said moments of suffering are, are, are opportunities for us to demonstrate the love, com comfort, and compassion of God that he has for us. And so we carry ourselves in such a way as to, as, so that there is no fault to be found in our ministry. He goes on in um, uh, there, the rest of verse 8. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This, this Paul is showing here that though weak, he is made strong. And just for the sake of clarity, when he says, as poor yet making many rich, he doesn't mean financially rich here. Some will become rich. Some Christians will become rich. Some will become poor. That does not measure God's grace towards either one of them. What Paul's point is, is that I've made myself poor in, this, in sufferings and everything else that he has described in this chapter, so that others might be made rich in Christ. His goal is to lead people to Christ and to strengthen those who are in Christ. And let that be the goal of Christians today. Can we surrender our grip on our, our, our affection for, for politics and power and influence and rather dedicate that time that we're dedicating to lesser things to the greatest of things, that is, to, to the propagation of the gospel and the strengthening of fellow disciples. If, if we put all of our eggs in that basket, this world would be a better place and the church would be better off. So, though on the one hand, some say he is unknown, he knows he is known. Though some, some want to punish him, yet they cannot kill him. Though they may slander him, uh, yet, yet he's, and, and call him a pastor, or imposter rather, uh, yet his words remain true. He doesn't surrender to the hardships, but rather he endures with grace and uh, the compassion of Christ. And then notice, he, he looks at the Corinthians, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. We're, we're, we're getting... Um, clear manifestation of, of the false teachers so that they, 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 they are Paul feels as if the, the false teachers have turned those whom he has led to Christ and pastored and discipled away from him and, and it's interesting he, he says I speak to as children he's writing to a church of believers and he understands that their maturity uh, has been stunted I would say that's true of the American church quite honestly 
Uh, we have been poorly trained and poorly prepared for this moment of conflict and a moment of, of, of travail for our country. And, and often is the Christians who are contributing not to be in peacemakers but agitators. So, so often ministers feel like we, we have to speak to children. It would be better if we were eating uh, real spiritual food instead of the milk that we spend too much time on. Um, and it's real convicting there. I speak as to children. Widen your hearts to us as well. Well, from that, he, he makes an application regarding righteousness. Um, that, remember that he, he didn't want to put obstacles in anyone's way so as to find no fault with our ministry. And now he's, he's essentially asking them to do the same thing. Remember we saw in 1 Corinthians that uh, sin ran rampant in the church. And there was one uh, example in particular, but, but he's, he's wanting them to, 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 to grow in righteousness. So, uh, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Can I just pause there for a minute and tell you what this doesn't say? This is not a reference to inter interracial marriage. It doesn't mean that at all. And, and I know that because Paul tells us it doesn't mean that. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The only way you can get race out of that is if you equate unbelief with a certain race, and that's just evil. Now, you're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you'll find the opposite in the Bible, that, that the gospel transcends culture, language, and race. Uh, after all, it is at the uh, foot of the throne of Christ that uh, people of every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people group, and every race and every gender sing Jesus as Lord. And so, so the fact that we make that argument from this is, is just something that, that has just bothered me for really my, my whole life because it's very clear what he's not saying. It's very clear what he is saying. What he's speaking of is is believer and non-believer. For he says the rest of verse 14, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is not a biblical word in, in terms you will find anywhere else in the Old or New Testament. It's a common Jewish word you'll find in the uh, intertestamental sort of writings. Um, just means Satan. Um, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So, so you see here the idea of yoking believer and non-believer. It's very explicit what he's talking about here. Um, now, the reason to me should be obvious. This is something we struggle with. Why? Because we live in a culture that says, follow your heart, not your faith. And if God can't get on board with your heart, clearly there's something wrong with God. Which again means we look in the mirror in pursuit of God. If God doesn't look like me, act like me, and talk like me, he can't be God. And that is idolatry. Self-idolatry, but it's still idolatry. It's just rank heresy. To say, well, I don't like this because, uh, and I'm going to disagree with what the Bible says, because it doesn't uh, conform to what I want uh, truth to be. That may work in a confused postmodern world that, that, that speaks contradictory constantly. It seems to be the rule. Uh, but it doesn't work in a Christian worldview. Because the, one of the reasons is quite simple. When you put an unbeliever and a believer together, particularly in a romantic relationship, unbelief will almost always triumph. 
Now Paul isn't saying here if you if if say you have two pagans in a in a home and one becomes a believer, therefore divorce. That that Paul contradicts that in first first Corinthians. But it isn't to say that if you as a believer, and in this example go into a romantic relationship, uh, do not yoke with an unbeliever. Uh, and and I, I think the reason should be obvious. The problem is again, we want to do what we want to do and and if God doesn't approve, we'll just abandon it. And we reveal the idols of our heart. And that's exactly what he says. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? I, I've, I've seen plenty of examples of this throughout my ministry. And oftentimes I think, what if in, in, in the 17 years I've been a minister, what if everyone endured through suffering instead of abandoning faith and followed simple precepts of the Bible like this? Where would our churches be right now? It'd be a different world. An entirely different world. Well, he goes on and, and he, he quotes from the Old Testament regarding that. Uh, but I really actually, um, I know it goes against what, we, what we've been doing. But, but I actually want to look at verse 1 of chapter 7 because it, it brings this section to an end. You need to remember that the chapter divisions, we've said this several times, are not inspired by God. They were added later by editors, essentially, um, uh, when they published the Bible. Verses came even later. Uh, and those are there for readability uh, uh, and, and to make the Bible more user-friendly. And they're good. I, I love the chapter divisions, but they're not perfect. I think one of the best examples of that is Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Genesis 1 um, is the creation of the first six days, but Genesis 7 starts with the rest on, on day 7. It seems like day 7 should be in chapter 1, and then uh, the, the fuller detail of day 6 should be chapter 2. But that's not how they did it. And, so, uh, and now we have whatever the King James translation said as the standard for chapter and verse division has become the standard of all English translations. Um, and so, and so, with that said, chapter seven, verse one actually goes with the theme of chapter six. So I, I want to read it. It says, "Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." Notice that you put this whole chapter together. Holiness is something that helps us through suffering, and is imperative in our day-to-day -day life. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, which is what he just talked about being uh, unequally yoked, and uh, let us bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's essentially the idea of the Christian life, to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And that, when we grasp that, will help us persevere and endure through suffering. If we pursue holiness, we shall endure. The question for you today is, is holiness my primary goal in life? And if not, why not? We're going to see you guys here tomorrow.